0: This is episode 81 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Roz Morris. Roz writes fiction and essays about unconventional ways we can be haunted and how we seek people and places we belong with. Her work has been profiled by The Guardian, Literature Works, The Potomac Review, Forward Reviews, Rain Taxi, and BBC Radio. Her fiction has sold more than 4 million copies worldwide, although you won't have seen her name on any of the covers. She began her career in secret ghostwriting fiction for big name authors. Now, Roz is coming out of the shadows. Her own novels have been described as profound tales and compelling page turners with fine honed language, unforgettable characters, and gripping unusual storylines. She is a writer, journalist, fiction editor, and the author of the Nail Your Novel series for writers. She teaches creative writing master classes for the Guardian newspaper in London, and she's been a story consultant for a variety of media, including film and video games. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, Including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Roz Morris. Welcome to the show, Roz. I'm so excited to have you. Hello, Coverley. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we we were connected in the most unusually cool way through our love of horses and being equestrians. And I was part of the International Equestrian Virtual Clinic, I think is is what it was called that was hosted by Crystal Kelly of the Equestrian Adventuresses and she interviewed me on Creative Writing and Roz watched and then reached out to me and said, oh my gosh, we have so much in common. Let's talk. And then I invited her to the podcast
1: and a magical connection was made. Right, Roz? Absolutely. There I was expecting just to hear about horses. And uh, then suddenly there was Carly talking about horses and writing. I thought my worlds have collided. This is <laughs> great.
0: <laughs> it's the best thing. The best thing on earth, right? Horses and writing books about them, which we're going to talk about with Roz today. Roz is uh, has an incredible career, started off as a ghostwriter and is now working on her own collection of books. And then we're going to get into what she's up to, what she does, what she writes about. But before we start talking about that, here comes the question I always ask at the beginning of the interviews. Roz, how did your love affair with horses begin?
1: Well, it began because I grew up in a an old house that had stables. And, uh, and it had a coach house. So they, obviously they were coach horses. That's how people got about it. It was built at the, the turn of the, of the 20th century. And the, the stables were now used as sheds, but there were still mangers there and, and just little relics of how they had once been used. And then new people arrived next door and that house had also got stables as well and they actually had ponies and I went and made friends with them and um they were so cool the people were cool the ponies were cool their whole life and and they had all these lovely bits of gear you know isn't a saddle about the most delightful thing you could ever look at absolutely (laughs) yeah and you know the smell of the barn and everything I was absolutely desperate Mm -hmm. to ride and these these kids they they could do anything they were so cool being able to gallop about and I tried and I was hopeless I fell off all the time couldn't control the the ponies I was just (laughs) really really bad and my parents didn't want me to get into riding because they were obviously thinking well that gets really expensive (laughs) and um, so I kind of fed my craving by occasionally stealing rides on the the friends' ponies when they would let me and it was always going wrong but I also discovered pony books and they gave me the adventures I was looking for and the connection so I, I sort of built up this library, the huge library of pony books by, um, I don't know if you have those in the States, but the the Pulling Thompson sisters, the three of them who, who wrote just reams and reams of these stories. Um, and our real favourite was Ruby Ferguson, who had nine novels about a character called Jill, who started off not being able to do it at all and then gradually just really, earned her relationships with these horses and I was reading about these and I really really wanted that life um and then I grew up a bit more went to college in London and forgot mostly about horses for a few years um as in a band instead <laughs> so, um, I, I then was on the tube one day and I saw a woman wearing joppers and boots and it was straight back to their craving because her job has had marks on them from the saddle Mm. and uh, her boots had grease marks from the horse's sides. Now no one but me would find that attractive but I was staring at her and I thought I have to do this and so I went and found out where I could get lessons in in London where I I lived and it gradually built up from there finally I, I found a stable where people kept horses on working livery and that's how I got my first horse.
0: Oh my goodness, that is so, that is such a lovely story. And what would we do without the Pony Book authors, right? I mean, they are the one, we we learned from reading those books that were written by people that knew their horses and then it fed our desire for horses when we weren't able to have them. And then then also, thank you for Friends with Ponies and Friends with Horses for, in the places where we can take lessons when we don't have one in our lives. But what I'm hearing is you wound up having a horse and you have a horse currently which has inspired one of your books which we're going to talk about too do you want to talk a little bit about your your furry baby
1: my furry baby well this is now my second one Um, I kept my first one for a very long time I bought him when he was seven and he finally died when he was 30 he was massive he was 17 and a half hands and for years people would say to me that horse will never make old bones because he's a big big hunter Mm. and um, I just I was just really lucky he he developed arthritis when he was 18 Mm -hmm. he probably had it all his life because he moved in a bit of an awkward way but no vet could ever say exactly what needed to be done so I just kind of carried on and um, he's just a lovely natured thing when he was 18 he was diagnosed with arthritis and it turned out he'd got absolutely every bony change Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought this might be the end of riding him but various people said no exercise him and you will you will get more out of him so I just carried on as I always had actually fanatically exercising him and um he carried on um the next big setback was in his mid-20s he developed a heart condition mm-hmm. and I the, the vet said that that's probably it. it's probably not safe to ride so I I said but I'm not prepared to stop him because he loves doing things and so I started exercising him in hand um, and I would take him running with me. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and he would trot with me on a, on a lead rope. And you, you think how strong that animal was. Sometimes he'd be belt off and then he'd realise, I haven't got her with me. And he'd stop and wait. <laughs> <laughs> and I became known as the, the woman who went running with her horse. <laughs>
0: Now, this is actually a first that I've heard. I've seen people talking with their dogs, but not with their horses. But what a what a commitment you were to him, too, and keeping him healthy and giving him longevity. And that's something that I think equestrians know, but not everyone knows. Like, there is such a value to the relationship, even if when they get older, you're not able to ride. You know, there are so many things you can do with them in hand and on the ground. and And just grooming them can be such a healing, emotional experience. So there's still a lot of value, even if you can't. Get in the
1: saddle and compete. Right, absolutely. And if you told me that when I first bought him that I would end up just leading him around, I'd been be very disappointed, actually. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the relationship becomes everything
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because that's what you build up over that time. So um, yes, yeah, so I, I got him to thirty, and uh, and then he did start to decline a, a, a bit too much, and and so the, the kindest thing to do was to to say goodbye. And then six weeks later, I found another. <laughs> and and that has not been plain sailing i'm now in my third year with him and he's another irish hunter not nearly as big he's quite petite actually by comparison mm. uh very different person you you realize when when you have a horse for a while how how much you know their personality and this mm. one is totally different but he is very sweet mm. uh, so we're kind of just getting to know the world in new colours really the things that he likes and not the things that the other one liked but Mm. it's so rewarding
0: oh that's amazing I think this is a great spot to go into actually your second novel, which was inspired by your Irish hunter. And I think, you know, we're going to talk about all your books, but I think this is a great place to talk about the book in The Horse That Inspired It.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll actually have a copy here. Um, well, It doesn't have a horse on the cover, but it's it's got all the sort of atmosphere, and I'll explain, and then this will make more sense. It's called Life Form Three, and it's set in the future, which is unusual for a horse book, but it's just what I felt I, I had to do, write a story that that, that paid tribute to the, the stories that had really fired up my imagination and set me on this this lifelong love of horses and riding and having horses in my life. And I'm aware how lucky I am to be able to do that. And, and also to have a beautiful place to ride them in, because I actually live in a city Mm. So I have to drive for nearly an hour to get to where I've got my horse. But in that time, it's it's a transformed place. It is so different from streets and crowds and noise. It, it, where I go, there are woods and valleys and beautiful bridal paths and also arenas where I can ride as well. Uh, but it's this, this whole environment. And I constantly appreciate how lucky I'm to have this. Um, and I imagined a time when this might not be possible because you know the countryside is getting built on. Mm-hmm. And it can't be helped because we can't just all sit and look at everything and appreciate how pretty it is. We do all have to live and make livings and everything. Um, but what I thought was I would write about a time when, when a lot of this had disappeared and science fiction and fantasy allow us to do this. So we can change the physics and play what if. And the novel is about a time when there's just one remaining piece of countryside and it's been made into a theme park and people can go there and they drive around, they don't walk, they don't do that anymore Mm. and they just drive around to look at the old world and and then it's woods and valleys and a, a few wild cows and horses and the viewpoint character works there he's a groundsman and he's just doing things like clearing up poo and <laughs> um you know just the stuff you have to do to keep keep a place looking nice that nobody realizes and, and cutting hedges and stuff so he's like us he's deeply fulfilled by his relationship with with the land and. Also with horses, although he doesn't yet know that, because the other thing about him is he gets glimpses in dreams that he's riding a horse. he, He doesn't know how he's doing this, but he is. And it just grips his heart. And he feels I've got to do this. I can't ignore it. But no one else does this. And also, he's not fully human. He is actually an artificial person who has his mind wiped every now and again to make him work obediently. And so these memories are kind of creeping through an old bit of him. The title is Life Form Three because that is what people call horses in that world. They're so far removed from having them as everyday things. They've sort of really forgotten a lot of, of what they used to do. Uh, there are also cows and their Life Form Four and dogs and cats One and Two. And it's it's just um, that that is how alien everything has become. And... The groundsman is haunted by the idea that he has to go and seek contact with horses but it's, it's the most important thing in this world it's his is actually his his soul but at any moment it might be wiped away oh my goodness that is fascinating
0: and i mean i love the idea that you said science fiction is like what if but you know there's a real very real possibility that we could wind up there wiping out nature and for, forgetting the connections that we have with just riding like you do ride through the bridle pass in a, in a forest because you know it's like it's like here horse properties are being pushed further and further and further out of the city and it's harder and harder and harder to have horses without having to commute for an hour or something like that so so it, it really is it, that is a reality that could happen to us and you kind of captured the the what if, if we don't have that opportunity to have those connections with nature and with animals. I, I It's just completely fascinating. So this this story was inspired by your Irish hunter. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you weaved your experience with him into, into this story.
1: Well, I kept a lot of diaries. I, I'm a diary writer, notebook writer, just can't stop writing things, really. And um, I I had a lot of diaries about... How I built my relationship with him because it wasn't easy. I was quite a, a timid rider until I got until I got comfortable with him. But there were a lot of times when things weren't going well, and there were a lot of things we had to learn about each other. And I'd got diaries of it all. And I'd also got diaries of, of amazing rides where there was one that I put in the book, actually, it was an amazing ride in the rain. I, I mem- remember the, the actual day it happened, I turned up at my stables and people were sort of shivering, looking really miserable. and saying, I rented out for half an hour and it was enough. <laughs> and I, I knew that my horse, Byron was his name, actually liked rain. And we went out, put waterproofs on. We went out for two and a half hours. We had the most brilliant time. Oh. He was just loving it. And I was loving it. We were so in tune. And I, I put some of those rides in it too where where there was just something about being deluged by nature mm. and invigorated by it and just enjoying our enjoying our, our bodies and the sensations and the and the communication between them. I, I remember being on the path and just sort of looking at it and thinking now we'll gallop and he went yes we will (laughs) we we came to a log and i thought well i suppose we should slow down but it looks all right And he said no problem i'll take you over it and it was just that kind of relationship i wanted to to celebrate that magic as well that really comes and it and as i as i said about the pony books this is often quite hard one you start off with Many problems, many misunderstandings, and you eventually get to this blissful place. And there's just nothing else like it, really.
0: It is so true. I mean, and in particular with a horse that you spend a lot of time with, there is this magical connection. It's almost like you can communicate with them just through your your body and your thoughts, which is which is Mm. amazing. And I and I hear that a lot of those kind of experiences happen for you and Byron, and then they inspired your words, which is even cooler. Now you mentioned that this is set in the future. Was it challenging to write in the future? Or did you just have a blast like making up what the world looks like and, and how people interact with animals and nature and this theme park? I mean, was it easy or was it a challenge to write in the future?
1: It was a lot of fun, but I was very careful to be as factual with the basis that as possible. For instance, I, I had to do things like work out how many tons of manure might be produced. So I actually did research on how many tons of rubbish, rubbish a city might clear from its streets and so I had to know things like that to make it solid because I've edited a lot of science fiction and fantasy as well and there always has to be some kind of basis that that will make it feel real mm. uh, because there will always be some reader who will say even though I'm reading science fiction you've made this up that wouldn't happen so a lot, you have to do a lot of actual factual, actual factual research, (laughs) you have to do a lot of factual research in order to make it plausible, so you don't trip up someone who says, wait a minute, you've now gone completely off-piste and I don't believe you anymore. But something I had a lot of fun with and then turned out to be, it it turned out to be eerily prescient, was I decided that, that, that the people in this future would be very ruled by their phones and This was 2013 when I was researching this and and people weren't nearly as ruled by their phones as they are now. But what I had them doing was their phones would talk to other phones. Um, If you came near someone you might talk to, their phones would exchange information about what they should talk to each other about, suggest topics of conversation. They they would also suggest gifts that they could buy people. And that is coming true so little algorithms that the things i was just making up thinking oh it'd be fun if this happened they, they are actually coming true oh now, now yeah and that how crazy
0: is that right i mean we, we we all need to put our phones to the side a little bit in focus but it's isn't that amazing like you you thought that that could be a possibility in fiction and here it is it's actually starting to happen and again that's like touching back to you know, we can't lose our connection with nature, and that's a very real possibility. So I feel like your book has so many real messages for people to think about on how we are acting now, right? Would you say like that's a message that's that's available in that book? It's like, let's be careful, you know, the future yeah.
1: could be crazy. You don't know you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to explore the individual against society because there's a there's a big pressure in this book to conform and um they, this character feels if he conforms I and mean, he could be made to conform he could actually have his soul taken away from him mm-hmm. and his his soul being the thing that he loves and the thing that makes him feel alive so there's there's a bit of the sort of the individual trying to preserve what makes them them what matters to them
0: Oh wow, this sounds like such a special, amazing book and contribution. And I can tell you're lit up having written it uh, <laughs> because it explores horses in the future and being in awareness really, you know, like we have to be careful about conforming and what we're choosing and how we're interacting with technology. I, I just think those are all very real things to explore and I love that you did that. <laughs> now you know, I want to come back a little bit and talk about you as as a as a writer and an author. I mean your website I had fun galloping around your website collecting information and there's a plethora of information on your website so i was selective in what i chose it could be because you do so so much but your website mentions that you have more than 4 million copies sold as a ghostwriter and now you're publishing under your own name which is very exciting and with a horse book as one of them talk to us about the ghostwriting work you've done and like how you got into that and then why you're transitioning over to writing under your own name you've you've been incredibly successful
1: well it it, it's the way the publishing industry works really i was i was just an ordinary person who wanted to be an author was writing things i was sending things to to literary agents and i was getting replies that that said oh your work is is very well done you you do you are good at this but you're you're a bit too weird meanwhile i knew a lot of writers and, and and reader, I married. Oh, wow. uh, that's that's a really good move, by the way. Marry a writer, and, <laughs> and he he did a lot of contract work, including ghostwriting and writing series to to order for publishers. Very commercial work, and he was commissioned to write a, a book for a series, and he wrote it. It was a novel. The publisher then discovered that it didn't fit with the other books in the series because they they'd actually misbriefed everybody. So oh, they, no. they, had, they had a set of twelve books that didn't look like they belonged together. So they said to him, Can you just rewrite this, add this, and this and this? And he said, Oh yeah, sure. So he said to me, I can't, I've got another book to do, but you could do this really easily. So I did, and right. he sent it to the publisher, didn't tell them that it was written by me and not him. They said, you saved our bacon, thank you so much, and then he said, actually, it was my wife who did it. So that was my first ghost-written book, and it went out under a different name, no one ever knew me, And th- but from that I became known as somebody who could reliably produce books for particular markets that people needed books for. And um, that's how I got in. And these things are mostly done through personal contacts. People just know they did a good job for so-and-so, so so maybe they might be what I need. And I ended up writing quite a few novels. I seem to specialise in novels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was writing novels for people who had great big followings, and I, I was just fitting what their readership needed and it was a brilliant apprenticeship it wasn't what i would have written for myself but as as a as an exercise because these were very commercial books and i was working with very commercial editors but it was absolutely great for d- discovering what each kind of genre needed working with editors working with authors as well who needed their own their own spirit put into the book And I was doing that, but I'd always had this dream really wanting to do something for me. And the the more I did for other people, the more I felt what I write for myself has got to be truly from the soul. Um, And that's why I ended up writing a book that had horses and artificial people, and it was set in the future. And when I tried to sell that to publishers, they said, well, no one's really allowed to do that with horse books. You're, you don't fit anywhere. And they they also said if you were Neil Gaiman, you'd be allowed to do this. And I thought, well, because I'm Roz, I'm not. That's not really good enough for me. Anyway, I've ended up. Writing books that are sort of very, very personal in how they appeal to me, and then making them into something that I hope will will really grab a reader, using all the, the storytelling techniques that I that I learned while, while writing very commercial books. Wow, that
0: is incredible. I mean, it's so much there, right? Like being at the right place at the right time, having a husband who is a writer who gave you this this break, right? To work on a project that he couldn't do. And then it created this career for you where you were ghostwriting for other people. And you were learning the structure of like popular novels and working with the publishing industry and how all that works. But you still had that calling where you were like, I want to write what I want to write. And you're, you're, you're doing that. I have to imagine like, I mean, what is the experience of being a ghostwriter? Like you write a book for somebody else, and you have to probably put so much of your ego to the side and your creativity because because you're you're writing on, under somebody else's name like how do you how do you suppress like your humanity and your ego around your creativity when you're ghostwriting i just i'm really curious
1: <laughs> well i think it was easier for me at, to, at the time i did it because i hadn't really found out who i was mm. and once i did uh, once I, I spent some time editing my first novel and preparing that to, to be published and, and to sort of get out into the outside world, I thought after that, I can't now put my voice with anybody else's, for fiction anyway. With non-fiction it's different because mm. you they, they serve different purposes, but that was the point where I drew a line and, and said... I'm not ghostwriting any more fiction. I've, I've done that really as an apprenticeship. Uh, but now it's, if I'm going to put the whole, if I'm going to put everything into a work of fiction, it's, it's got to be what I would do. Mm.
0: That's awesome. And it, you know, what's so great about that is you knew when, you know, you, you knew when you had discovered your voice and it was time to pivot and do your own fiction work under your own name and, and embrace what you wanted to write about, which is, which is so incredible. Now, you write, I mean, it's you've had this incredible apprenticeship, you've written a lot of books, and you also write across genre. Talk to mm. us about the types of books you are writing under your own name, because you you have quite a few of them.
1: Yes, um, I've finished my third novel, it's called Everrest, and it it combines my love of uh, mountains, and uh, I was, I've always been fascinated by stories about people climbing Mount Everest and mm. just the the immense ordeal of that, and the the precariousness of life in those places. And it also is um, my I suppose all my all my novels are love letters in a way. <laughs> this one is also a love letter to music. Mm. Uh, because when I was uh, when I was growing up as a, a very creative teenager, I wanted to be Kate Bush, and there was a piano. Um, so I, I moved from horses to music. There was a piano, and I played it, and I just made up stuff, and I found that really easy. When I got to college, I the first thing I did <laughs> really was join a band, and um, we just had the best time just messing about with sounds, and it was the era of synths, so you could make big unholy amazing sounds mm-hmm. and, and build a home studio with not very much money and I I just completely loved that but and that totally creative process and the the way I got music and mountains together was um, another thing that I was fascinated by I saw a, a short story I think about somebody or it might have been a, a, an actual real life story somebody who fell into a glacier and wouldn't come out for a decade or um even a century, nobody knew. But I thought there are people waiting for him, mm. and and he is coming back towards them slowly through the ice and through their memories, and they've never been able to really let go. And um I I then thought, um, okay, who could fall into the glacier? And I I thought the people who are waiting for this person to come back but also the rest of the world was too because the person who falls into uh, the glacier in my novel is a musician a really famous musician so imagine somebody like David Bowie or someone who has just at the the, in the early part of their career when they seem to be the brightest light and they speak for you as well because their music does speak for you that's a really powerful thing about music and so the whole world is kind of arrested when he goes. Mm. And his music keeps him alive. And in this novel, it's 20 years on and everyone is still playing this music and it's reminding them of their, their formative years and what they felt like when they were a teenager and first falling in love and all that. So it, 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 it's the music that gave them their compass of who they wanted to be, the, the first music that seemed to make them understand who they were, all that. And meanwhile, there are three people who really knew this person, who 20 years on are still actually quite entrapped themselves. There's um, his fiance, who is with a new man, but actually she can never quite leave the old one behind because the whole world is broadcasting him to her, as well as what's in her own private grief. There's also his musical partner, who's a school friend. And th- that's where I used my experiences of making music and just starting off by thinking, oh, we are inspired by music. We want to make music like the, the people who, um, who have enthralled us. And so he has actually turned it back on the music business and is now a recluse in the mountains because uh, he just needs to get away from it all. But, but still, if he goes near anybody who knows who he is, then they just think of him as this little, first of all, they say, you've got old. (laughs) (laughs) And and then there's a musician who nearly had a big break working with them and feels he's never been able to be recognized on his own terms for the music he could do. So there are these three people who, who, they're all really needing to let go of this and they're as imprisoned as this man in the ice who may or may not be found. So that's Everest
0: wow oh my gosh okay like we have so much in common you you were right when you reached out just to me and you said we have so much in common because the writing the horses and the music i mean i can completely feel where you're coming from with the music like how it creates you as a young person and how it connects with you and i i was never a musician but i did work in the music industry and as a artist and development representative so i worked right. with artists so i this is this is this is so cool listening to you talk about that like I literally got goosebumps you know like how all the stories (laughs) come together and and I love this because you are this is what you want to write about this is what your muse or your soul is calling you forward Mm -hmm. and your experiences in life are feeding it but it you know it's fiction you know but but you're using these like really profound emotional experiences that you've had whether it's the rain with Byron or it's you know you're banging with the synthesizers you know you're using these like full on emotional moments to create your work. And I just, I I really feel your passion. Thank you for sharing (laughs) that with us, I love that. Now, now, here's another really, really neat thing about you too, is you also teach other authors to write and publish. I mean, given your history, you'd be a great person for this, obviously. You host a writing blog, you've written and you've written a book series called Nail Your Novel. Talk to us about the services that you offer.
1: Yes, I, I do editing and mentoring. So I, I might be helping people with a completed manuscript. So that's developmental editing where they, they send a manuscript to me and I go through it in the fine-tooth comb. And uh, essentially, I end up giving them a very detailed tutorial in what's working, what isn't. Um, discuss with them what they want for certain parts of the book uh, because one size doesn't fit all. Um, so something I'm, I'm very keen on is intuiting what the writer really wants mm. to get out of the of the work and um, and helping them to do that. And it, it's very rewarding to see somebody blossom. And I also sometimes work with people who don't have uh, manuscripts as far along, so I might uh, mentor them. Uh, there's a, a lady who I'm helping at the moment. She said, I've got all this stuff and it's um, family history but i don't want to write a family memoir i don't want to write a family saga i want to make a novel out of it and i can't get a plot so i am a kind of plot whisperer oh i love that plot whisperer that is so cool <laughs> and actually plot whisperer is somebody else who, who has used that as, as her blog title i think and it's it's great but um it's it, it is essentially what i'm doing i'm yeah. i'm kind of teasing out of her what she wants the book to be delving into her characters and saying right here you've got something that will really work well if you explore it more so i'm, I'm yeah. guiding her to create the novel that, that she really wants to and again having done so much myself that wasn't necessarily what i would have intended to write and having moved to the novels that i really kind of need to write and express i, I love helping other people to get mm-hmm. that out of themselves too because it's so rewarding when you do mm-hmm. absolutely and it, you know and
0: there just like there are. Horse whisperers. There can be multiple horse whispers. There can be multiple plot whispers. I just never heard it that way. And I think it's really, it's really kind of a beautiful way to talk about it. Like helping, you know, like helping someone with their horse and having the most beautiful connection with the horse they can. You're doing this for writers, helping them really connect to what story they have in them, but they're not sure how to how to get it out there. You know, with all the experience that you have, I imagine working with you is pretty tremendous experience (laughs) and then your book series nail your novel Uh,
1: talk to us talk to us a little bit about that where where did that come from well this is the workbook version and um there are three others there's uh, one which is kind of the beginning version which is a method so it and that's called nail your novel why writers abandon books and how you can draft fix and finish with confidence Mm-hmm. and then i did a follow-up about characters and another one about plot and they came from work i was doing with with authors i for a while i worked for a literary consultancy i was well i was freelance i wasn't staff, but uh, they would send me manuscripts and i would go through and think, out oh, right this and this and this is, isn't working and inevitably one of the things I would say was you need to restructure this quite a lot. The the structure needs a lot of work and you've got arcs that sort of aren't very satisfying, but they could be because if you do this, this and this. and And they would always react with complete horror. Because what I was suggesting was that they take a manuscript of 70,000 words and they disembowel it and they couldn't begin to think how to do that. And this is a, a big misconception that authors have. They think that editing, starting from the beginning and going through all your words. And it's not, because under the words is where the real physics of the story happens. The words, the skin, you do that last. Underneath it, you need to have structures work and once you start thinking about a book like that it becomes much easier to make the changes that you need to but you really need need somebody to hold your hand through that re-envisaging process which is what i did with with my first writing book i i thought i will just write down why i don't find it Terrifying to do that to book because I write first drafts that need all that work done, mm-hmm. even though I plan and everything. Um, and the, the, the planning stage is is, is another uh, another subject in itself. But I, I do all that. I, I plan, that I get a, a draft that looks like an unholy mess. But I don't mind going and attacking it and reordering it and everything. So I wrote a method that would help people understand how to do this without fear, and all the points where they would get the heebie-jeebies and think, this isn't working, it's a big mess, I don't know what I'm doing. And I would sort of reassure them. Um, And part of that may actually have come from my experiences trying to learn to ride where I I would get very dispirited. And then I found some instructors who wrote books like Mary Wanless who would say, "Um, the reason you feel this is because of this and it's natural because of this. And I thought, I want to try and apply that to a book for writers, where I say I know how you're feeling, and this is what you do about it.
0: That is amazing. And authors listening in, I will make sure to link to the Nail Your Novel series in uh, Raza's show notes, so you can get to that. But yeah, I'm hearing a lot there. I, I mean, so you, there's like the structure underneath the words that if if you know where you're heading, it's often easier to write the book. So let me ask you this: So how long does it take you to write a book, and then how long? You generally spend in your editing
1: period. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, really long time in the editing period. Mm. With Everest, I I probably wrote the first draft in a few months, and then I put it aside, and I knew it was awful, but I needed to just let it settle and think about it. And then, with all the editing that I did and all the sort of rethinking, it took the whole book took six years. Mm. But that's because of the kind of book I was writing. If I'd been writing a genre novel, it would be very clear what the reader would need, the kinds of things that would have to happen, even though you always do them in a surprising way. genre is not predictable, but you give the reader certain things. But with Everest, it, it's... It, it wasn't clear exactly what I should do with it, but I still had to, to create a satisfying work that had a reason why it began where it did, a reason why it ended where it did. Mm-hmm. And I took a long time figuring out what all those, the, those steps should be and what the nuances should be. So if you're a kind of writer who writes for nuance and the moment-by-moment experience and for giving the reader a very rich experience, then it will take you a lot longer. Mm
0: -hmm. And from what I heard you say when you were describing the book, it's like an epic saga of over the course of 20 years that involves many people and the connection to music and emotional experiences and coming back from being trapped. And I mean, it takes
1: as long as it needs to take to get it to where you want it to get. Would you agree with that? absolutely and people often say to me how do you know when to stop editing because i end up just abandoning books they say mm. i don't end up abandoning books i do actually know when i finished mm. because it's kind of got to a stage where i think ah oh, this is what i hoped it would be i had no idea when i started but this is this is now kind of all in tune um you do you do get to a stage where you realize now it works
0: Hmm, that's amazing. And then how do you structure your writing time? Do you have like a set writing schedule to get the words on the page or, or work on your editing? Or are you kind of just when the inspiration strikes kind of writer?
1: That's a really interesting question because I realize my brain is a non-stop writing and editing and publishing machine. It does that 24 seven. So I actually have to schedule time for other things.
0: you're lucky (laughs) it it
1: doesn't always come with the right things if I'm I I do spend a lot of time struggling with answers for particular questions but I am always getting kind of little to-do notes I must do this I must do that I'm always kept busy so what I actually do is I I schedule other things like uh, my horse and exercise and uh, I so I, I ride in the morning when I can give my horse my whole mind and not have other things that I'm thinking about and and actually what I've been doing is before I set off in the stable for the stables I I watch a video I've been, been following an absolutely beautiful series called Art to Ride which I heartily recommend. It's it's transformed. In lockdown, I had to abandon my instructor. She couldn't come to see me, but I was sort of meeting a lot of schooling and training, and she said watch some videos on leg yield. And so I just found these videos, and I thought, oh, I can understand these. I thought I'd get hopelessly confused, but I could I could understand all the principles and it was the dressage training I had been looking for Um, and so I watch one of these videos to sort of get me thinking about what I'm going to do and then I drive to the stables and I school my horse or hack my horse and we have a lovely cuddle and groom afterwards and and so on and then I I come back and and I'm ready for the deluge of my brain saying do this do this do this but I do write a lot of to-do lists and, and so I can keep track of what I'm meant to be doing. So so that that's really how how I structure everything.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Getting a ride in first thing, and you know, mm. and just being with your animal and being at peace before all the stuff of the day takes over. That's mm. that's lovely. And then you have a lot of experience with the publishing industry. Like, where where are you now in your author career? Are you are you hybrid publishing? Are you working with traditional publishing and independent publishing, or are you going independent publishing? What are your thoughts on? publishing
1: well I've always tried to get literary agents for my uh, fiction I, I had a, a literary agent for novel one which is called my memories of a future life that's another strange idea that, that became an epic I had an agent for that but she couldn't sell it mm. I had an agent for life Form three and basically he loved it but he said I don't know if I'll be able to sell it and really you're not allowed to do this unless you're Neil Gaiman and mm. he couldn't sell it uh with Everest, I sent it to agents, and I got a few enthusiastic replies from agents saying, like, "Send me this immediately! It sounds amazing." And then they—I think—they were waiting to see if anyone else bit. And because it's unusual and it's not—it uh, it doesn't really have any fashionable concerns that British publishing is looking for—they all sat on the fence. So I thought, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to self-publish it because I can. And so I have—I've always. Trying to see if if traditional publishing would be a good fit for any of my books because I think it gives certain advantages but the advantages are fewer and fewer I think actually what I was hoping I would get what would be valuable to me would be an introduction to their audiences Mm. that's really what I wanted so their marketing know-how which I'm not very good at marketing their connections with reviewers that kind of thing Mm -hmm. now not everybody who is traditionally published gets very much of that anyway but those are the two things I, I was looking for if i if i did get a traditional publisher interested the thing i didn't need is the thing that they they tend to offer far more readily which is making the book because another thing in my background is that i've worked in publishers i was um I was the manager of the editorial department of a very small press and so i know all the book making jobs <laughs> this was absolutely amazing When I wrote Nail Your Novel. I did try and sell that actually. My agent tried tried to sell it and she said, Everyone says it's too short. And I said, No, it's the right length. Because uh, writers don't want to spend loads of time reading a book that thick. Trade publishing would want a book to be that thick because then they could justify it. it. It's it works for their economic model, but my economic model didn't have to do that. So I made the book exactly as long as it needed to be and no longer. So I knew with with my publishing know-how, I knew how to make it look like a decent book. And so I just did the production myself and I brought that out and that was my, my first self-published book. Then when I realised my novel, my first novel wasn't going to sell, I self-published that. And that felt like more of a risk at the time because it was okay to self-publish non-fiction because you could demonstrate that you knew what you were doing mm. and you had reputation. If you self-published fiction, then you were just one of many people who thought their novel was good enough and it was really difficult to to convince people now that's all changed because you can you can demonstrate that your books are good enough uh, whether they're fiction or non-fiction but at the time it, it was a bit of a risk the difference between them now is is just what you want out of the relationship. If you if you want a publisher, look at what what they're going to give you, and and whether you want that from them. I have now worked out that I don't really. I I can do the things I need to myself. Mm-hmm. And tell the story
0: that you want to want to tell, because isn't it true that often publishers are looking for something in a vein or in trend or similar to other things that have been selling, and things that are a little. Different, like horse books. We often hear that mm. horse books are too niche and they don't know how to sell it. But but there's this whole genre that's like really expanding with self-published or independent independently published authors writing about horses and expanding the genre. So so it doesn't mean your books don't have merit if your agent can't sell it. It just means that it that may not have been what the publisher is looking for at the time. Would you agree with that? Oh totally, yes. Because
1: agents have to think who do I know who will buy it mm-hmm. and publishers have to think how will we sell this we're going to be spending a lot of money on it mm-hmm. and we've got to make sure that, that the titles we have will make us the money that we need because we're businesses mm-hmm. if you're writing as a, a sort of personal artistic crusade you have a completely different set of needs
0: yeah, awesome. Thank you for explaining that because I just, you know, rejection does not mean that the book doesn't have merit. It just means sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't fit into a certain product or box that they're looking at or a comparable author who is doing particularly well at the time in our current culture, you know, so so I just don't want reject like people to think rejection means you have to independently publish. I mean, there may be somebody out there, but independent publishing allows you a lot of creative control over your work and to be able to reach your readers in your own way. And write about what you want to write about, like horses.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I did a novel, a novel, a, a memoir. I did a travel memoir, just as a little sort of amusement while I was struggling with Everest, and um, it, it became. A, a book I, I actually managed to get on uh, BBC Radio several times. It's called Not Quite Lost: Travels Without a Sense of Direction. It's travel diaries in the vein of Bill Bryson, and I didn't even bother trying to get an agent for that because I knew what would happen. They would say, "Oh, nobody knows who you are." So I thought, "Well, I'll just send it to the people who do know who I am," and um it, it did quite well. And it, I'm really proud of it. And it was a labour of love. All my books end up as a labour of love, actually, because I. I get really involved with them. I I can do my best for them. I can make them what what I judge will be good for, for the market. And I do take I take quite a bit of advice on this. I don't just sort of write and know what's going to work. What I do is I, I talk to people who who know me and, and say, if I did this, do you do you think it would work? Would you like that? I don't do market research as such, but I I do talk to, to people who, who know my sensibilities and what they would expect from me and I, and I check that I would give them the right thing. Hmm. Or that if I'm going to take it in a new direction that they, they won't think you've lost your marbles or you, you've sort of completely disregarded something. Um, so I'm quite careful to get beta readers who will, who will tell me if I've made good decisions. And that's something that, that you really should get. Every author needs someone who gets them will keep them on the right track and will help them make the most of what they can do that's very important
0: yeah that is great advice you know work with trusted advisors advanced readers beta readers like get get opinions and feedback you know because you're not in it alone right you know so and yeah it, and it's you spend so much time with a manuscript that sometimes you stop seeing things or you can't look at it from a you know a different perspective so that's where that feedback comes in very valuable so that's great advice
1: and you need that from the start as well Mm -hmm. always try to find people who will you you don't want people always telling you're good that's not what you need you need people who will tell you what your strengths are but they also need to tell you what your blind spots are Mm -hmm. and those are the people who will sort of form the the um the little clan who will help you get where you need to be Mm -hmm.
0: great advice great advice uh and then what do you wish, because you've had a long author journey, what do you wish you had known at the beginning of of growing all that you've grown?
1: <laughs> I At the time I started, I always thought I would eventually end up with a publishing deal <laughs> because because that's what it, what it was like in the in the 1990s is when I started writing. Mm-hmm. And, and then in sort of the 2000s, I was looking for an agent and so on self-publishing wasn't a thing then and it wasn't possible to do it well and without it wasn't possible to do it well and cheaply what you had to do if you did it at all was to buy um, a huge number a huge print run of books which you then couldn't sell anyway Mm -hmm. Um, and then when things like um, the kindle came along and amazon enabled self-publishing to be done um, to a huge audience that changed absolutely everything but it took I'd already been writing for quite a while and and sort of knew a lot of people who were traditionally published and so I thought well that's what I should be aiming for but I didn't and I self-published the key well the next book I'll get a, a deal and and then I suddenly realized I don't need to do this because what I have got is people coming back to me anyway saying they value my books Mm-hmm. and i'm building the reputation that i wanted but i'm building it on my own terms with the work i really want to do and the work i really believe in mm. and that was very important to me so i would have 20 years ago given myself a little talking to and said don't worry you will be able to do this and you will be able to write the books that matter to you and sort of keep your integrity as an artist
0: Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. And the Very wise words, you know, from someone who's been there and done that. And how fortunate are we that we can do independently like publishing now and maintain our intellectual property and create the brands that we want to create and write the books that we really want to write without having to fit into, you know, the peg in the right hole, right? We, you know, we have a lot of, lot more freedom. Yeah. So I, I, I like to ask this question too. I mean, As a creative, what is the best investment you've ever made in your career, would you say?
1: Tuition. Tuition. So yeah, really finding really good people to learn from. With self-publishing, I found really good people to to fill in the bits of self-publishing that I I didn't know about. I knew how to make books, but I didn't know about any of the other aspects. So I just found really good, reliable people who could tell me how to do it. And earlier than that, um, when I was really learning the ropes as a writer, I enrolled in an evening course in a local arts college in the centre of London. And for two years, I went to a class every Thursday evening and I heard writers read out their works in progress so there'd be two or three per session and we'd all discuss the, what we'd heard and mm-hmm. it was moderated by a literary agent who was a, who was a brilliant fund of information about absolutely every kind of book mm-hmm. and i just absorbed so much about how readers see what the writer has written, how they respond, and the kind of questions they ask, and all the things that you have to think about. And, and I had it done to me a few times as well, and it's really nerve-wracking. It feels <laughs> like you're being stuck with knives. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. It's so difficult to, to, to have that done to you. But you learn such a lot. So that was, if some people go and do an, an MFA, um, that probably gives them the same thing. But I just absorbed so much about how fiction works and, and non-fiction as well, but it was mainly fiction. So you learn loads by yourself and writing as, as in most things, it's, it's a really self-taught art. We, we learn a lot by just practicing by ourselves, but also we have blind spots. Like I was saying with, with your own book, you'll have blind spots. We have blind spots and something like this will help you just see far more clearly. So tuition is the thing that was my absolutely best investment.
0: Oh, that's, that's great feedback. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of self education, but you can learn so much from investing with others in learning Mm. from them as well. I like to ask these questions too, because every author answers a little differently. And it just gives an interesting perspective into the author journey that you're on. For you, what has been the hardest thing about being an author, but then on the flip side, what's been the very best part?
1: Well, they're, they're flip sides, actually, of the same the same thing. Um, I find that um, the, there's always a, a long period of muddle when working on a novel. Um, I don't get it with nonfiction, but w- with my novels, they start off with something that's nebulous and I want to capture it and there's something that really, a little heart that's really beating in there. And it takes me a very long time to find out what it really should be, what I should put around it and, and so on. And there's, I, I feel a lot of self-doubt at the time and I think can I do it again you know I, I've done it three times now but can I do it again and mm-hmm. I'm worried I can't and you just have to trust your process because you, you've got something that works for you and it got you from muddle to start with to something that's actually presentable and it will again but it's it's very hard to but the best part is when somebody tells you they loved your book that you gave them an experience and they're a complete stranger. They don't don't know you, but they read your pages and they got so involved that they had to tell you they loved it.
0: Oh, that is so special. And I love that you mentioned the self-doubt and can I do this? I I think every creative has that experience and you are so uh, vibrant and well-established and you've done so much, but you still – deal with it. And I think it I think that's just something there that, that authors learn to manage and, and live with and just push through and and know I can do this again. So I, I love that you mentioned that. And then of course hearing from a reader that you created something that never existed before and it touched them. Yeah. There there is nothing like that feeling in the world. So I that's you hit the nail on the head with those. So Ross, you're up to so much. Like you've got a new book coming what are you curious about? Where are you heading? What are you what are you doing next? I know you're up to a lot of really amazing things. Like tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about.
1: I have got the germ of an idea for my fourth novel, but I have no time to really settle with it. And I need to settle with it in order to get something out of it. But I have got a bit of anxiety about it. I'm thinking, can I do it again? <laughs> oh no. Um, at the moment um I'm working on the launch of my third novel and um that, that is quite demanding. Um, it, this is something that you really have to just allow proper time for, and um, you need to you need to do justice to it. There are some people who say I only want to write, and I and I completely understand that because the writing itself is so rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, when you eventually you've taken, as you said, you've taken nothing, and you have made something a big something that you can take a reader's heart and mind through but then when when it's actually done you've actually got the book made you have got to give it the best start in life so I'm concentrating on on doing that and learning as much as I can about where are the best places to to try and introduce it to new readers and and so on so so I'm I'm not trying to do anything else that will compete with that except for bits of editing work and so on but but they're sort of a separate compartment but that's what I'm concentrating on at the moment if I do start working on the new novel I will just want to abandon the marketing for Mm -hmm. the for the one that that deserves proper attention so so that's what I'm thinking
0: well that's that's excellent advice too I know I know what it's like when you complete a project wanting to give your book baby the best start in life but then there's this anxiety about not being writing something new immediately because we are authors, right? And, and what you're talking about is, you know, giving yourself some grace, you know, spending time with your horse, but but really focusing on one thing, staying in the lane, launching this book well, reaching new readers. And then when you're ready, you'll know, and you'll move on to writing your next book, you know, but the, yeah. idea, the ideas are still back there bubbling in the back of your mind, you know, at all times. So I think that was wonderful. I, Roz, I just, I love that we connected. I look forward yeah. to, you know, building our relationship with each other. You've offered such a wealth of information on today's show. Can you let people know where they can find you and your books? And I would, I would suggest people go gallop around your website because <laughs> you're, you're doing so much and there's so much interesting information there. So let people know where they can uh, get in touch with you.
1: Okay, uh, the easiest place is, <laughs> place is That's my website rosmorris.org and i'm r-o-z-m-o-r-r-i-s uh you can also find me on twitter and if you look for me on twitter i have an underline between the ros and the morris because another one got there first <laughs> and you can also find me on facebook you'll probably just look for the person with red hair <laughs>
0: <laughs> perfect and i will link to all those places in the show notes and then your books are your books available wherever books are sold or where are the best places to find your books
1: Yes, they're available everywhere. Um, they're in all the ebook formats and in print. So, the easiest place to find them is Amazon. If you just type my name into there, you'll, you should find them. Or my uh, my website has got links. Excellent. Well,
0: it, thank you so much for the gift of your time. I think it would be fun to have you back on the show to talk more about your adventures in writing and maybe dive deep into one of the topics that you do teach about yeah. i right? like like plotting or maybe we can talk a little bit about more about your book series but i'd love to have you back on the show again and help educate authors further oh, that'd be great i've so enjoyed
1: talking to you it's great
0: thanks for joining us this week on the equestrian author spotlight podcast i hope you enjoy these q a sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing just like me Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.